Welcome to the Constant Investor's Occasional Spotlight interview series. I'm Alan Kohler, and I saw a recent report on quantum computing put out by James Butterfield, Head of Research and Investment Strategy at ETF Securities. And uh, it's interesting for a start that they've got a head of research. But anyway, James Butterfield uh, has been doing quite a lot of work on quantum computing and uh, what it means. And I thought it was worth getting him on to talk about it, as well as his work recently on cryptocurrencies, um, which is also quite interesting. So um, here's James Butterfield, the head of research at ETF Securities. Perhaps we could start with uh, an explanation of what quantum computing is. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's essentially, uh, it's a bit, if you talk about the history of it, it's a bit like where standard uh, computer processing powers in the 1960s and the 1970s. Uh, essentially, uh, instead of like a normal computer, it does noughts and zeros. It can do many sort of different uh, dimensions of calculations, which means uh, the way it approaches calculations means it can basically calculate way quicker than a normal computer processor would. And to give you a kind of example of that, if we talk about 128-bit encryption, um, if you were to try and crack that, that's like computer security, if you were to try and crack that, um, it would take, using existing computer power, it would take about 788 times the current known length of the universe. So kind of it is crackable, but not very practical. Um, and the way that quantum computing calculates things, it would it could be done in seconds. So it's almost, you know, without wanting to get into too much detail, it's almost like just an alternative way to calculate things. But quantum but quantum mechanics. I mean, so as you point out, the the normal computing is is based on uh, binary, which is you yeah. know, one, ones and zeros. Quantum mechanics. And the principles of quantum mechanics um, are that uh, um, matter can exist in uh, in several states at the same time. That's, so, uh, so how does that how does that apply to computing? I mean, do you, does it mean you've got um, many kind of uh, um, states as opposed to binary two states? That's right. Yeah, you do have many different states, and I'm no expert on that element of it. Um, but it it means. Um, you can apply quite different mathematical algorithms that execute calculations much, much quicker. Or it, actually, in a, speed is not is not the right word. It's it's execute calculations in a different way. So it's almost like you know, with you have a an x and a y dimension for ordinary computers, where you you have an x and a y and a z, and it's almost that extra dimension gives you uh, just that better. I suppose computing power, but we're getting into an area. I mean, I've not studied too much about. So you're not a you're not a physicist, I guess. I <laughs> no, no, I've not studied too much about quantum states, but I understand enough to know when when quantum computing will be really uh, in the mainstream and what impact it will have. So, so have you had a, have you had a look at the the race that's going on around the world to develop quantum computing and where it's up to now? Yeah, there are four different technologies at the moment. Um, if, I, if I only have my, uh, hold on a minute, just wait, bear with me a second. Yeah, there are four different technologies, um, each with very, very different approaches in, uh, with quantum computing. 
So I'll just run through those quickly. Um, because it does, we don't know which one is going to really work um, or which one's going to really sort of... Do we, know uh, that, do we know that one of them will work? Um, well, I, I spoke to, I've spoken to a couple of professors that are really specialising in a couple, one, a couple of guys from uh, Switzerland, and they said it will, but not at the moment. So currently, when you hear about quantum computing, um, it's a bit like where computing was back in the, the 1960s. They had these quite unstable computer processors, and only around one in a million calculations would be stable. But over time, they, they use a lot less power now, and they're much more stable uh, calculations. So that, that's exactly where quantum computing is now. It's very, it can do calculations, but they're very unstable. I'm told only a one in a million calculations uh, actually comes up with a valid result. And it uses an awful lot of power to do it. And some people are extrapolating that and saying, oh, because it uses so much power, then you'll need, you know, to have one that can crack encryption, for instance, you need a sort of a, a, a sort of a nuclear power station to, to feed it. Yeah, I saw so, that. That was that was amazing. You, saw, you need a whole nuclear power station to power a quantum computer. That's not going to be really very practical, is it? I, well, I, yeah, that's true. But I think you could have argued the same in the 1960s about computer processors, that they were extraordinary, extraordinarily power hungry, but people are finding more and more uh, power efficient solutions. You know, we see computer processors and mobile phones now purely and they're super power efficient and, uh, and people say it's, it's wrong to think that uh, current uh, quantum computing will need the same level of power in say 10 years time that the technological advancements will mean it doesn't need that essentially. So I, bumped, uh, I, bumped into, uh, I bumped into someone from the University of New South Wales recently called Michelle Simmons who um, is a part of their quantum computing team and she's been working on qubits, Q-U-B-I-T-S. And um, she was claiming to have made a breakthrough um, and that they've actually achieved something there. I didn't quite understand when she was tell telling me what, what it was. But um, and you're looking at the four types and the breakthroughs or the, the race that's been going on. Have you, have you discerned whether the University of New South Wales has made a breakthrough? No, I haven't. I haven't. I'm not aware of that. Um, there are different approaches. I don't know which one she's using because there is there's quantum optics. There's this trapped ion technology. There's nuclear magnetic resonance and superconductors, and they each have their different, very different approach. Um, each with varying reliability. But yeah, as I'm not a quantum physicist, I think it's very hard for me to make a judgment on that. Um, uh, yeah, do, do we the, know one, the one that uh, the one that uh, seems to be also making press releases about it is IBM. Are you familiar with what they're doing? Yeah, well, I only know about the power, um, and I think they have a computer power, a qubit pro process power about one or two qubits, and it's expected really you need at least twenty to thirty qubits to crack, say, encryption in that respect. So apparently, that's still a long way off. In your report on quantum computing, you focused on encryption and the way that it's likely to, you know, basically break it down. It's um, it's a whole new world for hacking in a sense. But but they, th these outfits around the world can't possibly be just racing to uh, break encryption. There must be more to quantum computing than that. Yeah, I think we can we can take some comfort in the first people who have access to quantum computers will be governments. 
um, and uh, most, say, military military organisations around the world use a type of encryption called um, AES two five six, which you can't cannot crack uh, using quantum computing. But as soon as this uh, process of power becomes more mainstream, i.e., consumers can use it, then you have a serious problem uh, with encryption um, because currently computers that or iPhones, for instance, or whatever. Uh, computer you're using, when you execute transactions online, whether it's a monetary transaction or uh, any kind of real, you know, like the conversation we're having, we're having is encrypted with 128-bit encryption, that will be immediately vulnerable. Um, and I don't think we'll get uh, to a stage where suddenly every business is left with their pants down because ultimately they, they, they will become aware of this and start to upgrade systems. I think what comes very interesting is there's a significant amount of infrastructure upgraded uh, to, uh, required in order to, I suppose, have what they're calling a sort of post-quantum world where they're protected from it. And it does come with interesting problems too, such as if you were to use a mobile phone with 256-bit encryption, which would be needed in a quantum, in a post-quantum world, then it would be much more power hungry. Um, uh, and so there's a lot of potential infrastructure upgraded needed. Um, are, are, you saying, are you saying the 256-bit encryption will work against quantum computing? Yes, it will. Certain, most types, yeah. In fact, yeah, all, all the sort of different types. I've listed in the report there the different types of 256-bit encryption. The thing is, a lot of people saying, oh, don't worry about, 250, uh, about quantum computing and encryption because everyone can just upgrade to 256-bit. But upgrading has significant... Uh, challenges involved around IT infrastructure. And I think what we're going to see in the next 10 years is banks particularly invest a lot into uh, creating post-quantum encryption, essentially. Um, and you, that requires you, you seem to be suggesting we're going to go back to having um, uh, mobile phone batteries slung around our shoulders like, like uh, <laughs> bricks. Uh, no, I mean, I mean, a phone can now today run 256-bit encryption. Um, it would just be a lot more power hungry. It's not like you know, it's just. I, I don't know how much difference it would make, but um, oh, I've been told it would about halve the existing uh, phone power consumption. Um, you mean double? Or, double, double it. Sorry, about yeah, half the battery life. Um, <clears throat> so to me, I think this is what I'm worried about, or or less worried about more. I mean, I wrote this piece really. It was, it was because I'm amazed how few banks are sort of really discussing this openly at the very least. Well, you're you know, so, you're saying that organisations must act now. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you think about, if you're to really upgrade infrastructure, it, that that kind of change from everyone is very much wedded to 128-bit encryption on the internet. Um, there's quite a lot of change that needs to be made, um, and particularly in financial institutions where any kind of technological change takes a very long time. Um, so they really should start thinking about it now. The other piece I was interested in that you wrote recently was about uh, cryptocurrencies. Can we just talk about that for a moment? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, I, I think you've come to the conclusion that it can't be uh, seen as won't become money. Is that right? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, are they? is it better to call them a digital asset? Or is it better to call them currencies? I mean, it varies from one to the other. I mean, I think Bitcoin's closer to a currency 
as much as you could call gold a currency. I think there's real parallels between the two. But something like Ethereum is more like capital than currency because uh, on top of Ethereum, um, whilst it's uh, a monetary value transaction, theoretically, it's also a development platform. Whereas something like crypto, something like uh, Bitcoin is more like a currency in that they're, well, they both have finite amounts eventually that will be mined. Um, so, but yeah, it's quite possible. I mean, we, well, uh, we, I went, to, I've been to various events where the Bank of England have been present regarding cryptocurrencies and looking into this very seriously, and they could create their own versions of cryptocurrencies. Um, I'm really closely watching what's happening in South Korea and uh, China um, after the bans of ICOs. It'd be very, it's be very interesting to see what happens with how how do people get around that? Will they get around it, or will they just, you know, will people? Are we just trying to stop something that will just carry on marching forwards? I don't know, um, uh, <clears throat> but let's see what happens. I mean, ultimately, I think what's like is happening in the cryptocurrency world. It just becomes increasingly more regulated, um, but it's hard to say at the moment which one would be the winner. Um, do, do, do you think that? Do you think it's likely that central banks? Uh, might issue um, their existing currencies on blockchain. Yeah, it's quite possible. I'm just wondering how what that what difference that really makes, though. I mean, the whole idea of a cryptocurrency, to some respects, is it is quite uh, anti-establishment in many ways. So, um, what does that really do? I mean, a lot of people who are trading. If you look at, if you try and look for on on Bitcoin forums and what and try and figure out what a legitimate use is for Bitcoin. Many people talk about international transfers and how there's zero cost in an international transfer with Bitcoin because it is a truly global currency. Um, and so no central bank is offering a truly, well, yet a truly global currency um, backed by, yeah, it'd, be, it'd be interesting because it ultimately would be a cryptocurrency backed by government, but, you know, it's, it's backed by one single government and not a global thing on uh also, it, would the would the blockchain would the, the would the the ledger the public le, would it be a public ledger or a private ledger? I think they're kind of questions that need to be answered. We don't know the answers to those questions yet. Um, but ultimately, I can't see much difference between a cryptocurrency issued by a central bank and a currency issued by a central bank. I suppose the point being that if if um, if it was a, a sort of a cryptocurrency issued by central banks, then it would need to be fully global, wouldn't it? I mean, it would, in a sense, have to become a, a sort of um, a, an agreement or a, a, co a cooperation between all the central banks. Yeah, that would, and that is a massive challenge. Yeah. Uh, I mean, people talk about central banks coordinating today. I don't think they do. I just think some of the, in the developed world, the economic situations tend to be kind of roughly similar, and so they behave in a similar way. And also, it's a currency, it's a currency war thing. They're all sort of trying to have a cheap currency to make the exports look attractive. So, um, you know, that uh, it'd be hard to see that level of cooperation. And I think it's very interesting when you look at the history of cryptocurrencies. Um, there was a cryptocurrency in the UK launched 20 years ago called Mondex, and it didn't really work out. Um, there have been actually about 20 different cryptocurrencies launched over the last 20 years, or kind of versions or ideas of it. So PayPal was one. It was it was launched theoretically as a cryptocurrency and it failed as that, but it has obviously become a very successful company denominating in, in dollars. And, and you know, other companies have tried it, like VeriSign, for instance, and failed. And I think the reason why Bitcoin has really captured the imagination of many 
criminals, many geeks, many speculators and some investors now is that it's in the blockchain ledger system. And um, there are plenty, obviously, now using the blockchain ledger system. But this is the this is the one, rightly or wrongly, has really captured the imagination of 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 investors and speculators and and criminals, etc. So um, I think just because of scale and how the breadth of it, it's likely to, if any of them are likely to succeed, Bitcoin probably is, has got the best chance, really. Do you think it will? I mean, you point out that you can't buy much at the moment with Bitcoin. Do you think eventually you will be able to? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, we need really to see some legitimate uses for it. Um, and I don't think there is enough now. I mean, certainly some developers are using it. Um, people in the cryptocurrency mining industry are using, uh, are using it to trade for their services. Um, uh, but it's not widely used. I mean, I, I hear some cantons in Switzerland uh, can, you can trade it. There are various Bitcoin ATMs and um, uh, uh, various shops accept it now. Um, so it's really in quite a crucial kind of testing phase um, where it either kind of makes or breaks in my respect. And it's not being helped, I suppose, by government crackdowns. Uh, but I do interpret that as um, a kind of a, just a, t a regulatory phase that it, that it needs to go through, essentially. Uh, just before we finish, can, can I just ask you um, a bit about your company, ETF Securities, um, of, of which you are the uh, head of research? Um, it's based in London, right? Yeah. And uh, a global uh, ETF business. When, when I went onto the website, it asked me where I where I am, where, where I'm located, which I, obviously I said Australia, and then it gave me only the products uh, that are in Australian dollars. Um, when I when I asked for the products, it gave me the list of AUD ones. So I presume, um, well, I'm asking you, is it possible for an investor in Australia to, if they wanted to, buy uh, ETFs through ETF securities elsewhere in the world in other in other currencies? Um, yeah, if if uh, that individual can execute trades on international exchanges through whatever, whichever platform they use, if if they offer that. That service, they can execute trades, say on the London Stock Exchange. Yeah, if their if their trading platform provides that access, and I think you have to check it's you know it's on a platform per per platform per platform basis essentially. Right. So okay. obviously you know because the large chunk because our the Aussie the Australian component of the business is small but growing quite rapidly. Um, but you know, ETF Securities as a company has $24 billion of assets under management, which is primarily in Europe. I was struck by the fact that the by far the largest ETF in terms of assets under management was gold, um, physical gold. Yes. And, and I'm wondering if that's repeated elsewhere in the world, around the world. Um, so if you take Australia as your example, not, not so much. I mean, we do offer physical gold products here in Australia. Um, but it's it's more about equities and uh, the, the company is focusing on where there's growth and um, uh, what we're finding so far is uh, there's certainly having seen many investors over the last week while I've been here is that they're less interested in gold than say other investors in Europe and the United States are um, and they're more interested in equity growth opportunities so particularly interested in European equities which is a product we offer out here and um, uh, on the stocks 50 and robotics is another one they're very uh, keen uh, to talk about uh, it, ultimately the company doesn't want to focus on 
say, the very generic equity ETFs like the S&P 500, for instance, partly because it's a very, very tight margin business. It doesn't make sense for us. I mean, there's a race towards the bottom in terms of fees on the S&P 500 ETFs. So um, we don't want to get engaged in that. Tell us what your fees are on the others. On the, you, know, you mentioned the robo robotics one, which is, uh, has a code of robo. Yes. What's, what's the fee on that? That is 68 basis points, right? 65 or 68 basis points. And the Euro stocks, I think, is 30 basis points. So 68 basis points is quite expensive for an ETF, it seems um, to me. That, yeah, that's right. I think it's everyone presumes that ETFs are all ETFs are fully passive. I'd say that Robo ETF is um, a quasi passive one, it's a smart beta. Uh, or oh, I don't particularly like that phrase. I think it's, it, yeah, it's a, it's a quasi-active. It, it has an active element in that we have a board of uh, four financial experts and, and four professors that specialise in robotics. And from that, they select, um, they create a universe of about 3,000 potential robotics companies. And then from that, there's a systematic approach to selecting those companies down to around the current constituent number of 82. And how, how often do they change them? Uh, so that is every quarter the um, the index is rebalanced. What does that does that mean? Some are brought in and some are brought out. On the on what basis? On the on the basis of quality of the stock or, or the size? On, on the the systematic approach to the of the fund, yes, it will um, uh, it will deselect some and add others. On what basis? Oh, on on. I'd have to get you the fact sheet, I think, to get, you know, being essentially being head of research. I don't like to talk about product too much because I'm not here to talk my own book, essentially. Um, but I can get in touch with one of the sales guys and go through in much better detail than I ever could with the the systematic approach. Ultimately, it, it, it has it splits down companies between bellwether and non-bellwether. It looks at what percentage of their revenues are robotics. If we're as an ETF, you want to be true to a particular theme or you know, as any kind of thematic investor, if you want to be true to a theme, you have to make sure the companies reflect that. So, for instance, we don't have Rolls-Royce in the, in, in the index because only 5% of its robotics, only 5% of its revenues come from robotics. Um, so, um, but there's a lot, there's a whole sort of selection process based on turnover, the size of the company, um, valuations, etc. Um, but if you want the full detail, I can get in touch with um, one of the sales guys. No, it's okay. All right, very good. Well, that's been great talking to you, James. Thanks very much. No problem. All right. Cheers. That was James Butterfield, the head of research at ETF Securities in London.